of all the gifts that God's given to you and me as people made in His image. I think that the one that is the most noble and at the very same time most terrifying is this remarkable power to choose. The power to make a choice. Uh, Physical objects like the pulpit, they obey the laws of nature like gravity. Uh, Other living creatures mostly just respond to their instincts, but we human beings, we do amazing things, really. (laughs) We, We can remember things that have happened to us in our past and what happened. We can even draw from what others have learned and and we put it all together and when a decision comes we think ah if I do that that will happen if I do this that will happen and we choose uh, we human beings choose uh, we're not programmed just to run on a track like a streetcar no you know you made decisions coming to date didn't you you're making decisions now whether you're going to listen to this sermon or not and and you and I have this instinctive thought that that our choices matter, that our lives matter. So this gift of choice is an awesome gift that God has given to us, and it gives us the opportunity to do positive things with choice, but on the other side, it brings the opportunity to make bad choices, even evil choices, choices that wreck our own lives and often have a devastating impact on those who are around us. Uh, We sometimes have small decisions, that don't seem to have a great impact, but there are those huge decisions of life that affect our lives' directions. And that point brings me to the last sermon in the story of our faith and what God calls us to do. Uh, What I'm going to talk to you about today is God's call upon us to use this gift He's given us, this gift of choice, to make the most important choice that God is going to present to you and me in all of our lives. We already saw something about this gift when we looked at Genesis 2. Human beings were the only ones who were given a moral command. It was only the human beings who were said, you shall not, and you remember, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis 3, they made the wrong choice. They went their own ways rather than God's, and it wrecked paradise. But God loves even the people people made in his image, who walked away from him, and God came after them. Genesis 3, seeking after them. They hid. They knew knew they'd done wrong, but God came after them, and after that, he has, as Carol pointed out in the big God story, continued to come after us. And when Jesus came, that's what he said, I've come to seek. I've come to seek after you. I've come to seek so that I can rescue those who are lost. It's the very heart of the good news of God. I've been saying that the big God story really is good news that comes from God. We've been seeing it for nine weeks, haven't we? We started in the book of Genesis chapter 1 with who God is. We ended last week in Revelation 21 and 22 saying that God will make all things new. And now we bring it all to a conclusion by thinking about this gift that God has given us, this ability to make choices, and God's command that we use that gift to believe in Him. And that that is the biggest decision we'll ever make. And that it, like every decision, has consequences. Our lives matter. This one has eternal consequences. The way we have put it in the statement of faith, look at it with me. Here's what we believe as a church. That God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world 
and when he does so, assigns unbelievers to eternal separation from him and believers to eternal peace in his presence with restored relationships to God, to renewed creation, and with one another in the new heaven and the new earth, and all of it will be to the praise of his glorious grace. So today I want to think about this. I want to start here. I want us to think about what I'm calling the most important decision that you and I will ever make. And if I can just put it simply, the decision is this. What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Did you listen as Kate was reading to those verses that I've cited so often in John 3:16 and 17? Very words of Jesus. God so loved the world, a world that had even walked away from him. But he loved us so much that he gave his one and only son so that... Whoever believes in Him, and now here are the two sides, shall not perish, but through that decision have eternal life. Because God did not send His one and only Son into this world to condemn the world. He sent His Son into this world to rescue the world through Him. And in those verses, I want you to notice those two phrases. Whoever believes in Him. Do you see that? Whoever believes in Him, speaking about Jesus. It's this gift of choice to believe, and the choice is about Jesus. And in verse 17, that little phrase, He will save the world, but through Him. Now, I called the sermon the Great Divide, and I was drawing upon the uh, Continental Divide. You know about that, don't you? I, I have a picture of it here for us. It runs all the way through North America. It starts down in, uh, in, in, in the Latin Americas, runs all the way through Central America and Mexico, through the United States, all the way up into Canada, through British Columbia and Alberta. Now, all along the way, in sometimes very inauspicious places, you'll find little signs, and I put one of them from Milner Pass there for you, that will say the Great Divide. What happens in this is, even though it doesn't look like these arches where those signs are, they don't seem to be very significant to our human eyes. But what happens there is that the water that falls on that arch, some of it flows one direction eastward that goes all the way to the, into river systems that flows into the Atlantic Ocean, and others flow westward all the way into the uh, Pacific Ocean. It, it's amazing when I think about it. Same clouds, same rain, falls down, but it's divided two different destinies depending on which side of that arch they fall. I don't know if that helps you, but it does help me to see the kind of destiny, deciding choice that you and I have to make when it comes to Jesus. We've looked at John 3:16 and 17, but did you notice when it was read, John 3:18, whoever believes in the Son shall not be condemned. I've come not to condemn. I've come to rescue. I've come to show my love to you. Whoever believes shall not be condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he does not believe in the name of God's one and only Son. Now this is an incredible claim. Jesus is saying to you and me, I love you. But your eternal destiny is determined by what you do with me. And, and he's saying to us that when the message goes forward, as, as it's going forward this morning, that you and I can't just sort of let it roll off of us like water off of a duck. We can't be neutral about it. 
We are already, and the way it's put in John 3.16, perishing. We're in trouble with God and we, we know it. Our lives are not what they should be. But they can be lives that are no longer perishing. Lives that have eternal life. I, I think about this every Sunday when I speak to you. It, it's the same sermon that goes out every time. And I pray every time, ultimately, it will be about Jesus and calling us to respond to what God has to say. And, and that same message among us is going to have that sort of dividing quality about it. Because some of us, when we come here, will hear it and say, yes, I want to respond and obey. And others will hold it at arm's length and say, I'm going to go out and keep living for myself. It takes place all the time. And Jesus is saying, no, when my message comes, it's a dangerous thing to listen to a sermon. That's what he's saying. That if, if the preacher delivers God's word, that when God's word comes, there's a danger there. Because then we're held accountable to respond to it. Because when we try to say, I'm not going to make a decision, or I'm going to decide no, what happens is that we continue to be perishing people. You know the whole biblical message we've talked about. Each one of us is, as human beings have fallen short of what God's made us to be. We are sinners both by nature. We've been born. We have bad blood that's gone on before us, all the way back to Adam and Eve, uh, passing on sinful ways. But we've also become sinners in our own deeds. But only one has come. It's, it's, we're in trouble. It's like being in a flood. We're in trouble, and we can't pull ourselves out by our own hair. And yet somebody from the outside has to come and help us. And only one has done this. And this is the biblical message. Only one has come, Jesus. And as Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller has put it so clearly, he alone lived the life you and I were created to live. But none of us has. But then he, as the sinless one, was willing to die the death that each one of us should. But now we don't have to. Because he did. And no one else has done that. No one else has done that. So that there is no other name by which we can be saved. He is the way to God for He alone lived that life that had to be lived and died in our place. So this is what it is all about. The most important decision that you and I ever have to make is will we believe in Jesus? Will we entrust our sins to Him in repentance and say, I will no longer live for myself and then by faith entrust my life to Him and follow Him? Jesus put it so clearly in John 3, uh, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son will not see life. Do you see why I, I've come to you to say this is the most important decision that you and I will ever make in this world. Now that brings me to the second part of my message. I've called it the benevolent impulse. Uh, and that's the time when we ask the question, but what about... Do you know what I'm getting at here? But what about that other person? The gospel has come to us here at the Lake Avenue Church today, and you have to make a decision about what to do with Jesus. But what about those who aren't here? You know, this teaching of Jesus that you must believe in me to find life, I'm, I'm the dividing line, has caused all sorts of internal agony for followers of Jesus ever since he gave it. And, and, and here it is, if I can express it to you. When we read the life of Jesus, we see this beautiful Jesus who loves people, welcomes people that nobody else welcomed, 
offered forgiveness and hope to people who hadn't had it at all. People taken in prostitution were told that they can find forgiveness and new life. Tax collectors that people just called sinners, they could find forgiveness and new life. He says, I love you so much, I'm going to die for you. We see that part of Jesus. It's so beautiful and compelling. And it's the same Jesus that we find speaking in John chapter 3, who says, but you must believe in me or you are condemned already. The wrath of God comes because you have engaged in sin. And many people find it hard to figure out how do you put that together? How do you put that together? Now, do you wrestle with that at all? I know that some Christians don't. I've had pastor friends tell me when I say, we wrestle with this, some of us. They say, well, I don't wrestle with it. And they tell me the only reason I wrestle with it is I don't have a clear enough concept of my own sin. They say, any of, any of us that know uh, the depth of our own sins and the height of God's um, perfection and holiness, then what we know is it's just mercy that any of us ha- have come to God, that any of us can be forgiven. And I know they're right. I, I know they're right about that. But I'll tell you, there have been so many, many followers of Jesus through history who believe what Jesus says who believe that evil must be punished and that we've all engaged in it and that Jesus alone is the one who can pay the penalty for sins. We believe that and still we agonize and wrestle with that. And that's what I call the benevolent impulse. What what I mean by the benevolent impulse is deep down inside we have this longing that our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ will find a way for a whole lot more people to be rescued than we're aware of. Um... And you, those of you who've been here through your pastor's three and a half years, you probably know your pastor has a, an awfully big dose of the benevolent impulse inside. So we wrestle with this thing, and especially with two huge issues. And I want to just say a word about them. The two big issues that I feel like we have to come to grips with are what about the infants who die prematurely? And what about people who have never heard the name of Jesus? Now, we're not going to be here all day, so I can only say a few words to you about these huge, huge issues, but I'm going to at least give you your pastor's perspective. I think if I were a 30-year-old pastor, I would have just ignored this, but I don't think you can come to church with a sermon like this without at least knowing how we might think about this when we see the kind of God who is revealed here and we see this sort of message given to us. To set stage, when we gather and we have tough issues, we always have to start by remembering who God is. What have we learned about God? Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The first thing we learned is He can do things that none of us can. Anybody else learned that? (laughs) God can do things that none of us could ever have even possibly imagined. We've also learned this, that when God does His creative work, He knows what He's doing. And so when He is done, it was very good, right? And now God is involved in a recreative work. He's going to make all things new. So we can know this. When he is done, it is going to be one beautiful piece of work. We are, as Denny Blessy called, a piece of work. But we're going to become a beautiful piece of work when he is done uh, working with us. We can hold on to that. We have also learned that God is loving, coming, seeking after people, even sinners. But also that he is holy. And repeatedly through his word says that evil must be punished. If evil proliferates, there will never be a moral world. We know that this is true. In our families, in our church, in our nation, 
and in our world. And God has said, listen to me, I am a holy God. I will make sure that evil is punished. My wrath will be poured out against all that is not right. So we know all of those things. The problem is we wonder how he puts this love for people like us together with the fact that he has to punish our sins that all of us have engaged in. How is that possible? Let me tell you the character of God is that he is both of these things. Throughout eternity, you and I will always know that what he has done is more loving than anything that we could ever imagine but also that he has taken evil seriously and he has dealt with it. Our problem is how to put it together. I'll try to see if I can put some of it together. What about our children? What happens when a child dies so early that from our human perspective, that child didn't have the ability to turn, when Jesus says, light comes into the world, my message, my gospel comes into the world, and they don't seem to have the ability to accept or to reject that. The real problem is, is that we know that from Genesis 3 on, we've been born into this sinful race. We're sin, sinners by nature. You know, David would say in Psalm 51, I was born into sin, and that's true of children as well as, that's all of us, that is all of us. So, so what, what about that? Christians have looked at this in two different ways. Some, it's, it's not my view, it's many of yours I know, have, but some have said that, that the faith of others, especially believing parents, that faith of believing parents especially is applied to their children until the children can confirm their own faith. Uh, this is where infant baptism really has set in for so many. That many have said infant baptism is a washing away of that original sin until the child can confirm his or her own faith at that time of confirmation. Until that time, then God keeps the child safe. Now, uh, that's not my own view, but I know many of you hold on to that. Uh, Others have looked at at Jesus in places like Matthew 18. I'd encourage you to read that. Where children, nobody wanted to bring children to Jesus, but they were asking him the question, um, who is going to be in this kingdom of heaven when you rule? Who's going to be in? And do you remember what he said? I'm going to tell you something, he said. Unless you become like these little children, you won't see the kingdom of God. In other words, they become the very example of the people who are in the kingdom of God. By, by implication, many have looked at that and said, well, obviously what Jesus is saying is those little children at that stage are kept safe. They're the very models of the one who are in the reign, in the kingdom of God. Uh, some have looked at one little verse, obscure verse, in 2 Samuel 12:23, When David had lost his son due to his own sin, some of you know that story, and the son had died, and David wanted the son to be brought back to life, and God had said no. And then David in verse 23 says, uh, He will not come back to me, but I will go back to him. Now, some have said that just means he says, uh, I'm going to be di- I'll die like he didn't go to the grave with him. But I, I see much more hope in that. When you, when you put that together with the Matthew 18, many of us hold to this, that our Father, who is both loving and just, will keep our infants, our children, safe until there comes that time that they're able to confirm and respond to the light and to the message that has come to them. Now, I I share this with you. I'm sure many of you know how how much I have wrestled with this over the many years. Uh, Back a number of years ago when our middle child died, I am telling you, I was already a pastor. And I was sitting there wrestling, what do I really believe? 
what do I hold on to in these times? And I have held on to this, that our Father will keep our children safe until that time that the light comes and they're able to receive it. I found hope in that, even though the, the passages are not as clear as we would like them to be. And I want all of you, when you come, and you have experienced that sort of thing also, to be able to find that same hope in the character of our God and in the words of Jesus in Matthew 18. The other, the other situation is, what about those who have never heard the name of Jesus? Uh, last week, when uh, Jean Gill, our missionary in Japan, was here and shared about the tens of thousands of people in Japan whose lives had been taken in the earthquake and tsunami, and many of them had never had a clear presentation of the gospel. Some of you walked through the center door where I stand weeping, said you, you thought about that, and so do I. So do I. What do we say about the people who have never had any clear presentation of the name of Jesus when Jesus said there is no other name given under heaven whereby people can find salvation? Well, there are two things I hold on to. Here they are. Number one, only God knows who is in and who is not. It is his decision. It is his family. It is not mine. And I think sometimes, at the end of, of days, we may be surprised at who's on God's list. Um, Romans chapter 2. It's, it's a section, Romans 1 through 3. And Tiffany read one part of it at the end that says that all alike are under God's wrath. Young, old, male, female, Jew, Gentile are all, and in the middle of that, there are some people who are saying, well, surely God will not show mercy and grace to them. It's probably the Jew, Gentile problem. And, and God really says to them, that is not your judgment. That's not your, your, your verdict to make. And this is what he says in, in Romans 2. You have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever other, ever point you judge another... When you do it, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment is against those who do such things, but that that is based on truth. But at the end, he says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not really realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's clear to me on one side uh, that all are under the wrath of God, but at the same time it's clear to me that some people are making judgments, but they're not going to be in for sure. That God's judgments will be more tolerant, more patient, and kinder than ours normally would be. So it is, it is his call. Now, the other part when you see the words of Jesus is many of us who just sort of proudly think, I did it, I'm in, had better make sure that our true trust is in Christ. Our faith is in Him and not in what I did. Because in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, He says, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and do all sorts of things in my name, and I will not have even known them. You know where He said that? So the call upon us, as I look at it, the call upon us is to make sure, number one, that we have humbly received the forgiveness of Christ and that our faith is in Him. When we stand before the Lord, we say, it's not anything I did. My only hope is my faith in Christ. And God says, that is your hope. Hallelujah. Come in. Uh, so that's our first part. The uh, second part is to make sure that we let others know about Jesus. So, but, but our part is not to be the ones who say, he's in and, and he's not. She's in and, and she is not. 
Do you remember what uh, Jesus said to Peter when he sort of got into this attitude? What about him? He, he was, in John chapter 21, verses 20 to 22, uh, Peter had already been rebuked a little bit by Jesus. And then he, he tries to get it off. He says, well, what about him? Probably talking about John. Do you remember what Jesus said? Peter, what is that to you? You follow me. So it, it's, it's not our call. There, there's just an insightful part of one of C.S. Lewis's children's books about this. It's in The, the Horse and His Boy, and, and the boy is named Shasta, and at the end of all of these difficult times, Shasta is there with Aslan, the lion, the, the, the Christ figure, and uh, Shasta couldn't figure out why he wasn't there when he'd gone through so much trouble, and sometimes he'd seen this other lion. But just like we have experienced... Uh, Aslan wanted him to know that he was always there, carrying him, helping him in tough times. Listen to what he had to say. Shasta, there was only one lion in all your journeys. I was the lion. I was the one who forced you to join Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses new strength for that last mile so that you should reach the king in time. And I was the lion that you do not even remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. I was always with you. But then Shasta, what about about my friend Erebus? It didn't go so well for her. That was unjust. And Aslan turned to him and said, Child, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. So when we think about others, uh, what we have to come back to is to realize that the God who has been so loving and just with us will through eternity be just as loving and just with others. In fact, that's the thing I hold on to throughout eternity. We will know that God is exactly who he says he is. Remember, Moses, who are you? I am who I am. And read Exodus 34. I love, I show compassion, I am long-suffering and patient, and I punish evil. I am loving and I am just. The reason why this is hard for us to try to figure out how it is that God will prove himself eternally to be loving and just in these situations that we can't understand is that we are not yet like God. Does anybody else agree? We're, not, we're becoming, but we're not there yet. I'll just take it this way. When it comes to, to God's anger against sin, when I get angry, and I'm guessing you're like this too, I get embarrassed. Uh, I, I say, oh, that's not really me. I didn't sleep well last night. So I'm glad a, few of you, a few of you have been there. But deep inside, I know that really is me. I know that what's come out is, is that now you... People in my church have seen what I'm really like. When I get really angry about something that's silly, I know that that facade that we try to keep up of our perfection has come down. And then we, people see inside of us and we see that we're not yet complete. Anybody else resonate with this? In, in our anger, often we see our self-centeredness and our image consciousness and all of that. Our anger is so filled with self that it's hard for us to imagine a God whose anger comes out of His love. A God who isn't angry about evil is not a loving God at all. 
Love that does not show anger against evil is not going to provide for a moral and loving world. See, in our world, we often think love, in our definition, is always saying yes. But you know in your families, if you only say yes to your children, you're not going to have mature children, right? You're going to have spoiled children, self-centered children. Then others who, who have experienced harshness in their families feel that all, all that God tries to do is tries to make sure that wrong things are dealt with and is, is always justice. But if that's all, if God only says no, then what you end up with is abused children and broken children. And God says, I am, I am both. My love and my justice are two sides of the same quality. I love people. And I love that my people are treated justly. I hate injustice. And so as I've told you so many times, some of you who have lost loved ones and you don't know where they stand, you have to trust God to be who He is. And throughout eternity, you will know that God loved that loved one far more than you ever could. And that God is also just. He will not deal unjustly with anyone. Heaven will be heaven. And I'll tell you, it's hard for us to figure out, but this is what I ask you to do. He does what we cannot imagine, but He is worthy of your trust, and He will prove Himself throughout eternity to be that loving and just. We cannot put it together, but someday when we see it, Just like at the cross, nobody could quite understand what that was about. But at the cross, we saw God's love for us by dying for us and His justice by seeing how serious sin is. So in eternity, we are going to be, as we put in our statement of faith, singing the praise of this one who has shown His love. We're not going to be weeping because He's unloving. We're going to be singing the praise of the one who has found a way to punish evil. We're not going to be complaining that he is unjust. I'm telling you, at the end of the age, we are going to be doing what the statement of faith says. We are going to be singing to the praise of his glorious grace. Uh, We really will. We really will. Now, the last point, our time is gone. But I cannot end without saying this. Making the decision. Are you ready? I want to ask you what you are going to do with Jesus. It would be unloving for me as your pastor to let you go out of here today without just putting this right in front of you. Jesus says you must repent of putting yourself in my place and of those things, going those paths that you know that I would not have you to go and believe in me and trust me. I want to remind you again of all the gifts that God has given to you as a person made in His image. I really think the most noble, but also the most terrifying, is what I'm asking you to do. To make sure that you make a choice that Jesus is the one in whom your entire trust is being placed. See, when we come to these big, big decisions in life, so many of us don't want to make them. Uh, we, we just, because it takes a commitment, we'd rather make a no decision. Uh, I think of a friend back in college. He really loved this young woman at the college. He, he loved her. I know he did, but he could not make a decision. She pushed him on this. But he kept saying, well, it's not that I don't love you. I just can't make this decision. Finally, she came down to this relationship-defining moment. Um, and he just said, I'm not saying no. I just can't make a decision. And a year later, she was married to someone else. Let me ask you, 
Was that a no decision? And that really is what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3. I love you, but you cannot make a no decision because you're in trouble, you're perishing. You've walked away from me, all of you. But I, but I offer you, but, but you must use this gift that you've been given, made in the image of God. I'm ready and able and willing to save you, to rescue you, and to begin remaking you. But you must believe in me. So here comes the question to you. Will you receive Jesus or reject him? I've spoken as, as plainly as I can. I, I pray that the call to know who Jesus is and, and the decision that has to be made has been clear. Light comes. What will you do with Jesus? And if my words are too unclear, I'm just going to use his. John 3:36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Cannot be clearer than that. So maybe you've been coming to church a long time, but you've been holding on to your own life. Today, today, be sure of this, that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of us who have made that commitment of faith, I've talked to you so often about these difficult times in which we must uh, engage in intentional acts of faith in Jesus. So I'm going to ask us a question. Will you choose to trust Jesus? See, it all has to do with Jesus. Um, the, the, The issue I put on the table about will God prove to be loving and just to others with the questions we have. Will you trust Him? So freeing. When we know what God is like and know that heaven will be heaven because he will continue to be who he is. But maybe there are things happening in your own world, in your own life that make no sense to you. And I'm just calling upon you to trust Jesus. It could have to do with your health, with your family, finance. Trust Jesus. Tell him you don't see what he's doing, but your life is his and you will entrust that matter to him. And then my final question, also about Jesus. Do you and I know the gospel of God? We know it all centers in Jesus. Will you choose, use that gift, to tell others about him? We know he is their hope. Light has come into the world. For whom does the good news come? May I show you again John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, all right, who's in the whoever? (laughs) Who's in the whoever? The people who come across your path today? Who's in? Whoever. What must they do? Believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Because our God did not send His one and only Son into this world to condemn the world. Out of His love for the world, He sent His Son to rescue the world through Him. And it will all be to the praise of His glorious grace. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God.